0: And welcome to lucky episode 101 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Yun Jiang, the inaugural China Matters Fellow at the Australian Institute of International Affairs. In just a little over two weeks, Yun will be a featured speaker at the Center for Independent Studies flagship concilium conclave in the Hunter Valley. Today, we'll be asking her about nationalism and despondency among young people in today's China. Yunjiang, how are you?
1: I am doing very well. I'm uh, currently in Canberra.
0: Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Hopefully, we can change that for the better.
1: Uh, I like Canberra. And uh, interestingly, I'm actually also from (laughs) the Hunter Valley. I grew up in the (laughs) Hunter Valley. So I'm looking forward to the concilium.
0: It'll be fantastic. You'll have to show us around. Look, here in Sydney... but. And throughout the West, we've heard a lot about rising nationalism among young people in China, wolf warriors and people being very aggressive. But how much is that picture true?
1: It is true that um, the youth of today is much more nationalistic compared to um, people from, say, one or two generations ago. But I think there's a reason for that. Now, firstly, of course, that's due to partly um, the propaganda and patriotic education from the Chinese Communist Party. So since the 1990s, the government of China, which is a Chinese Communist Party, um, has started education through its schools, so all the young people that has gone through the schooling system has received that. Basically, uh, they talk about love of the country and love of the party, and um, conflating the two together as well. So that's definitely uh, one big reason. But another reason is the fact that China has, you no, know, uh, objectively speaking, becoming became stronger as well. Okay. So um, in the past, say in the 1960s. Um, China was a closed country. So that was during the Mao period. And the population was actually misled um, into believing that China was a prosperous and powerful country. So when the China um, as a country opened up on the yeah. that generation of people was really um, disenfranchised. They, 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 re- they realized what the real information is what the real facts from the outside that China was actually weak and poor. So that has um, the people from a generation have developed some sort of inferior context, believing that foreign is always better. Now, people of this generation, China has truly become richer and more powerful. So for them, they do believe that, you know, um, they, they feel more proud of China's achievements naturally.
0: Mm-hmm yeah i was uh, you know listening to you speak there it struck me something very obvious that i never thought of until you said it was that patriotic education in china inculcates both a love of country but also a love of party uh and of course i didn't think that because outside china that's just not the way we do education i mean we've heard a lot about nationalism in china have the has has there been as much success of uh, the Chinese government in inculcating a love of party in China?
1: I think the it is quite successful for people to link the country with a party. Mm-hmm. Um, if, uh, but that does not necessarily mean that. Uh, use of today, or people in China in general are uh, always supportive of government policies or, or what the party is doing. Um so especially when there's a critique from the outside of, of China's government policies, uh the party often says, well, you know, they're criticizing the, the country, the people. So there is this conflation. Um, there. But we think domestically, the Chinese people are still often criticizing uh, government policies, uh, especially on the implementation side as well.
0: Right. Now, we are a live show. We do take comments and questions from the audience. So if if you're in the audience, you'd like to get your question into Yunjiang, please send it through. Uh, Anthony Carr has mentioned on YouTube, a regular viewer, uh, people are always attracted by and want to be associated with success. And Anthony, that's why we're attracted by and want to be associated with you and with all of our other viewers. Um, but let me turn that into a question, Yun. Uh, to what extent is rising Chinese nationalism really not due to school education and party programs and propaganda? Is it just what you said at the beginning, a, a natural reaction to China's rising place in the world?
1: Um, I think there two... Um, factors are both important. Um, if there was no patriotic education, um, China, the people in China would likely to still be more proud of the achievements of the country um, than they have been previously when it was weak, when it was under um, uh, what they called a uh, bullying by other imperial powers during the Qing Dynasty. So that is um, a definite, definitely a factor. But I think patriotic education still plays an important role um, in really emphasizing that, underscoring that and to keep that into people's mind more often.
0: Right. Now, there are endless debates about, you know, nationalism versus patriotism. Is nationalism bad? Is patriotism good? I don't -hmm. want to try to Pin you down on these definitions because these this goes on forever. But is it possible that some form of national pride, whatever you want to call it, can actually be a positive force for reform? And, and can that be? Can in China could that potentially be reflected in people holding their government accountable to fulfilling the aspirations that they've raised?
1: I think nationalism can be a force for good. Um, in the past. Uh, in Chinese history, there has been periods of different political movements that's based on nationalism. So we have the May 4th movement and self-strengthening movement. They're basically about people wanting the country to be stronger. And as part of that, what they did was learning from the West. So especially in science and technology, and that has um, had an effect of making the country, you know, m- making some reforms in the country. Um, so nationalism is um, definitely a way to improve the country as well, so to a positive side. Um, on the other hand, um, one thing that the current government is also concerned about is that the nationalist sentiment may push the government towards more of a hawkish stance. So especially on thing, on issues uh, such as um The mainland's relationship with Taiwan, Um, there's a lot of talks about ultra hawkish nationalists online basically saying, well, you know, it's the time to demonstrate uh, that we are actually powerful. Let's retake Taiwan. And that's not something the Chinese government actually want or encourage.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned the May 4th movement. If I'm remembering right, May 4th is National Youth Day in China, is that correct? And it yes. is because the youth were involved in the uh, the overthrow of the Qing dynasty and the implementation of a uh, the modern Chinese Republic in, correct me, is this 19...
1: Uh, I think so, uh, it's a slightly more than 100 years now. Okay, that a little of that yeah, in, in the 1910s, or... th-
0: um, Would you connect to, would you see reform in China today is coming in the same way up from youth as opposed to, you know, from reformers within the party hierarchy?
1: Well, youth are always um, more radical, I guess, than the older generations. That's not just in China, but in a lot of countries. Um, University students are always the first to go to protest um, and hold, at that time, radical views. So. But the, the the problem is, in almost all countries, the youth don't hold the power. They they like to they 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 tend to come from the outside the power holders and uh, um, and um, push for reform. But in China, as we know, because it's an authoritarian system, so forces from outside the system, outside the party, is much weaker. So they have um, less influence on um, policies than perhaps in other countries.
0: One of our viewers, Tony, was uh, at a seminar last night at the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Maybe you saw him there. I couldn't be there because actually at the Center for Independent Studies, we were hosting uh, Lord Jonathan Sumption, the uh, eminent British jurist and historian. So too many good events happening in Sydney all at the same time. But he, Tony was at the Bates Gill seminar, and he said that Bates stressed the primacy of the Party in everything Xi Jinping is doing, the party, not the state. Now, I'm really curious to know your view on this because I myself have gone on record as saying, no, actually, it seems to me that she is working. I mean, obviously, the Communist Party is everywhere in China, but it seems to me that she is working through state institutions, not so much through party institutions. What's your own view on this?
1: I think under Xi Jinping, um, he has really stressed the importance of party building. Um, And I think party has gained much more prominence as an institution than state compared to the previous leaders. Um, Now, Xi is, you know, that he has encouraged. Uh, a kind of a personality cult as well um and uh centralization of power um to himself right. um but what he's trying to do and he has little comparisons between he and Mao Zedong as well but what the difference is that Mao during the Cultural Revolution was outside the party. It was trying to basically destroy the party from the outside and rebuilding it in his image. He was a revolutionary, whereas she was very, is very much uh, establishment power, uh, establishment leader. So he's not, he is about building the institution of the party. Um, but you're also right, at the same time, he's talking a lot about, um uh, um building more institutions and the rule of law or though some people say that's more like rule by law um means <laughs> also building um, state power at the same time
0: all right uh you uh, ra- raise the issue of the cultural revolution which was of course not only a maoist movement but a very much a youth focused movement in you know 19 roughly 1968 to 73 we can you know be malleable about the dates. I'm wondering, would the cultural revolution have happened if video games had existed in the late 1960s and early 1970s in China?
1: Oh.
0: And you know why I'm asking you that question. Who
1: knows? Who knows what would happen if video games existed?
0: Ah! Oh. Well, um. I'm, being, I'm being facetious, but China, about a year ago, put very heavy restrictions on video games and have, have very you have know, heavy restrictions on youth access to online yeah. video games. Uh, now, video games are, uh, you know, maybe a way to keep, you know, rebellious youth quiet, let them play their games, let them shoot things up in a virtual reality. So I am kind of suggesting, well, first of all, I'd love to know what's behind China's crackdown on video games, which has been really, well, so extreme that many people in the Western world uh, want to copy it <laughs> and want to... Yeah, that's
1: right. Well, no, the, the Chinese Communist Party has always had a very paternalistic strand okay. um, to its governance. Um, it really believes that the government the government knows what's best. So, yes. you know, in a lot of other countries, perhaps you think, well, it's the role of the parents to stop their children from playing video games. But um, in a paternalistic um, frame. Um, uh, uh, Frank said, uh, "The government has a role to tell the to tell the parents and to tell the children what's best for them." Um, and the, 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 the Chinese government believes that children are spending too much time playing video games. They're not uh, spending enough time, you know, perhaps uh, um, studying or doing sports. So there's another thing about uh, in doc- uh, in. Um, Encouraging masculinity among um, among uh, Chinese boys as well, so uh, sporting uh, is now becoming more prominent. Um, but they think um, they think that video games are a vice. That's almost like you know drugs and alcohol in in some other people's mind. That right. they, they should be uh, restricted.
0: Right. So first of all, thanks to Tony for passing through the uh, date 1919, of course, for the May 4th movement being a reaction to the Treaty of Versailles and the anti-China provisions in the Treaty of Versailles. But I want to kind of, I I know it may sound ridiculous, but I am curious about these restrictions on video games and Chinese youth discontent in China. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could view video games as a as a bread in circuses, as a soporific for young people who've been stuck at home through coronavirus lockdowns. I mean, is it possible that this might backfire on Xi Jinping? Like instead of having all his all the angry young people playing video games and chatting online, he may have them in the streets instead.
1: Ah, look, I think that's unlikely. There are a lot of things the state has within its power to stop um the people to congregate and to protest um in a way I mean there are still protests happening in a smaller scale uh, but in a way that will um you know topple the government or threaten the government um so I think uh, that that's <laughs> unlikely um but yeah I think um I think it's more about from paternalistic side to to really guiding the 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 party likes to see itself almost like in a paternal role as a father of of the country it's guiding Mm -hmm. it's it's uh the the children towards a proper and better
0: behavior it's funny you should use that that word the paternalism and father of the country because again tony put in the comments the the comment that this tension between legalism and confucianism which goes back Mm -hmm. two thousand years in chinese history we could maybe apply that to today's Communist Party. I mean, how would you apply that, that tension to the Communist Party today?
1: Uh, I think despite throughout the history, the public messaging has always been that the leadership and the emperor's uh, confusion. Legalism has always been at um quite at the centre of a lot of uh, um, dynasties, basically. And under a current uh, regime, under the current communist government, legalism is again heavily used. You can see how, um, you know, punishment uh, to fit the crime is very much emphasised. It's not, you know, even though the public message in the again is very confucianism it's very much about oh morals we need to guide people through morals but the way they actually encourage um proper be- what they think is a uh, proper and good behavior is still through legalism
0: okay now um in a, under a totalitarian regime like today's china protest is very difficult but there is an odd form of protest that's been making the news at least here in the west and I'm curious how prominent it is in China we've heard about the quote-unquote lying flat movement can you explain to us what the lying flat movement is is that an appropriate translation of the Chinese term and and what how how big is it
1: yeah it's a literal translation of tamping um it's a lying flat movement it's quite popular online, it's, I think, in my mind, it's a little bit like the Great Resignation um, in, I think, in Australia and the United States, in the West. Uh, basically, it's about people who, who realise that they're always in the right race. Basically, you're always in the right race. No matter what you do, you always need to do more. Um, nothing's ever enough. So then they want to just of a zen buddhism like uh to take a break to um to lie down as i say to lie flat right. um to not strive and to be constantly striving for something um i think it came from a culture that in austria in, in china there's a hyper competitive competition in china you know everything from even when you started. Kindergarten, you are being often forced to take a lot of classes, to learn different languages, all the way through to universities. And once you graduate, the competition for jobs is, again, very intense. Um, so it's constant competition um, and including looking for spouses as well. Um, and that has led to people just wanting to quit the right race.
0: Right. About this time last year, I remember China essentially abolished its entire after school education uh, industry, uh, it one fell swoop. Now, that does illustrate yeah. the challenges of doing business in a country like China. But also, w- was that a response? I mean, was that a response to the, the pressures that are being put on China, uh, put on children in China? Or was it, I mean, I could see it as a response to um, eliminate any alternate bases of education outside the state. That is, you know, you can only learn what you learn in a in a state school. I mean, how should we understand that that really dramatic move last year?
1: It's definitely the former. It's definitely about they're trying to reduce the pressure on students because even with those after-school tutoring, they're still teaching the same curriculum as the ones in school. Yeah. So they're not teaching them how to think critically or things like that anyway. So
0: it wasn't just English language schools or you know things like it. It was all after-school schooling.
1: Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. math um, so, and
0: science, all of it.
1: So what they, tr- the, the governments tr- what they say, that what the government was trying to do is to reduce pressure so that the students, they okay. just go to schools, do their homework, and then they don't have to go to after-school tutoring. Um, and, but the problem is that it has not removed incentive for competition. Did, because what they did is, even though they have said, okay, you can't do after-school tutoring, the competition for you know university places are still just as intense. This means what happened was the middle class children or the poor people, they can't afford um, to take those their children to you know uh, tutoring. but the oh. richer people can still go to individual tutoring. <laughs> so it actually um, increased the social divide.
0: Well, but I hear that both ways because other people would say that under the uh, uh, with after school tutoring, It was the middle class and the rich who could afford the tutoring. So like, should I understand this? Uh, I, I mean, are you confident that this reform will I mean, I know it will benefit the ultra rich, perhaps, but will it be benefiting the rich at the expense of the middle class? as opposed to middle class at the expense of the poor. Yeah,
1: yeah, sorry. It's more about the middle class. So people who go to after school tutoring are mostly middle class, whereas the richer people, they can afford individual tutoring. And I guess if you're on the lowest stratum of society, then you can't afford any tutoring to begin with.
0: What's funny about the history of education in the West, and particularly in England, is that the, the public school, quote unquote, arose as a, as a venue for the middle class, right? Because the aristocracy had private tutoring, <laughs> but those middle class schools became so prestigious because they were so much better than the aristocratic tutoring that the aristocrats then wanted their children in the public schools, right? So they became oh, exclusive okay. venues. Um, but, but has the same? I, I mean, are, are we now seeing the same sort of logic play out with China that uh, these private schools, the after school tutoring, were they actually? Better than the education that was available elsewhere, and is that why they're being disbanded? I mean, I'm really, am really struggling to understand. Uh, well, <laughs> well, forgive me, frankly, I'm very suspicious of the motive. Well, the party just cared so much about young people, <laughs> it didn't want. So, so, uh, what, what do you see as the motive here? I mean, I, I know you've talked around this a bit, but could you do you have a clear view of?
1: They do care about young people because what the what the pressure on having uh, on these children mean is that people are not wanting to have children.
0: <laughs> oh, so
1: okay. One of the problems with uh, as as I'm sure you know, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is very much concerned that declining um birth rates. Okay. the, the changing demographics. And one of the big reasons for young couples not wanting to have children uh, well, one is that you know the former one child policy has meant the People are just used to having smaller families to begin with. But also the the pressure of, on children. So once you have given birth, you basically expect to, um, you know, send send the child to all these different schools, all these different uh, after-school tutoring. And that is very costly for the parents. Right. Um, they're not saying And also time-consuming as well, of course. Right. Um, so when... So, the, the the reason why the government wants to reduce pressure on children is also to uh, um, encourage people to then have more children.
0: All right. And I know a lot of that uh, narrative is around, uh, you know, a, a, a populous country being a strong country. And there's a lot of concern, at least that I've seen raised in Chinese media around uh young people maybe not being physically strong enough to serve, you know, they need more young people to serve in the military and they need strong young people to serve in the military. And so there's been a, re, a government reaction against, of all things, Korean boy bands. Yep. <laughs> so, so can you put that in context? Is this all part of the same party narrative?
1: Yeah, it is about enforcing strict gender roles and uh, about cult, what they call cultivating masculinity among uh, young men. Okay. So the concerns are that uh, young men today uh, they want to look like their idols. You know, uh, uh, people that look like Korean boy band who look very uh, pretty, I guess, uh-huh. um, skinny, not perhaps not overly muscly. Um, and they are concerned that those idols are making um, the young men wanting to be like them and instead of wanting to be uh, what they think it should be more masculine um, looking men.
0: So while the Western media is concerned about rising nationalism among Chinese youth, it sounds like the Chinese Communist Party is more concerned with the is this is the right word for it the feminization of Chinese youth?
1: Yeah, yeah, they they, they, they did uh, use feminization of men as one of the things they are concerned about. They, they have public said that, yes.
0: And what about women then? Is, is, I mean, if I think back to the Communist Party tropes of you know thirty or, or fifty years ago, it, it was you know women's liberation. Women should be in uniform in the army alongside men, you know, working in the work brigades alongside men. Is is that, I mean, has the party now flipped that?
1: Um, not quite. So, I mean, the official line is still that women, you know, holds up half the sky. Right. Um, and that was that
0: Mao who, is, is that a Mao the, quote? Sorry? Is that a Mao quote? Women hold up half the yes, sky. That yes, that's good. a Mao quote,
1: yes. And the, they're still pushing officially for equality between men and women. But in real life, women are experiencing um, many barriers uh, to, especially in their career, because a lot of um, companies wouldn't hire uh, women of childbearing age, especially if they haven't had children, because they expect women to then be- get pregnant. Right. So there's a lot of discrimination against women in the workplace still.
0: The irony is that we know like pretty well from couple of decades at least of social science on this, that uh, one of the keys to economic development is of course women in the workplace, not just in the workplace, but women having equal access to the workplace so that you make full use of the human resources of society. So that if China wanted to be the most economically powerful country it could be, um, it's not keeping women at home to bear children. That should be their goal. It should be women in the workforce who then have proper support to be able to bear children, but able to but continue progressing in the workforce. Do uh, Chinese yep. leaders not understand that? I mean, we have lots of good social science on this. Is no one telling? Them. They they do.
1: Um, the women's workforce participation rate in China is still very high compared okay. to other countries. Okay. So they are in the workforce, but the problem is, um, you know, the, the quality of the job they get compared to the men, and the fact that um, in China it is still very much expect to socially, uh, especially in certain areas, for women to do all the housework as well.
0: All right. Now, Yun Jiang, thanks for joining us today. I want to ask you one final question. I know we have to go, but a final question I can't resist. Um, what is going to happen with the reappointment of Xi Jinping as president of the People's Republic of China?
1: Oh, I think uh, it's quite uh, certain he will get another term.
0: And will there be controversy over that, or will it just sail through with no problem?
1: There was controversies when they removed the term limit, but since then, I think uh, uh, it appears smooth sailing. I'm sure there in the background, there has been a lot of resistance but things have all been overcome.
0: And young people will accept that, or young people will have no choice?
1: Well, I I don't think they have a choice. Uh, And besides, I think, you know, elite politics is still a bit far removed from most people.
0: All right. Yun Zheng, thank you very much for joining us today. And we look forward to seeing you in a little over two weeks at Concilium.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Take care. Thanks also to our producer, Nico Mallion. Thanks to our executive producer, uh, Max Hawk Weaver. The director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Bobonis. Thank you for watching On Liberty.